Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF Now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Albert Burney, a filmmaker whose features include The Beast Project, Tux and Fanny, and Silvio, the last of which he directed with the actor Kentucker Audley. They reunited for the charming new drama Strawberry Mansion, in which Audley plays a government memory auditor who falls for the younger version of his latest client, played by both Penny Fuller and Grace Glowicki. It's a weird, lovely little film, and it's on digital and on disc right now. You should check it out. Albert picked A Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, actually, he picked a different movie before we started recording and then kind of organically tacked towards Wes Craven's 1984 horror classic for reasons that'll become apparent about two minutes from now. We wound up ranging all over the subgenre of dream cinema anyway, so just settle in and let it wash over you. It's how the mind works, after all. And trust me, it all comes back to Albert's films anyway. This is someone else's movie. I think the first film festival I ever went to was Ottawa Animation Festival. Mm. In um, I was an undergraduate. I think it was 2001. Oh, yeah. Or 2002. Yeah, sophomore, junior year, I forget. But um, yeah just like blew my mind. I went two years in a row and then um, just renting horror every weekend with my friends growing up, you know, it was like, it didn't matter if the movie was horrible. It was almost better if the movie was bad, <laughs> you know, like yeah, if the cover looked really like low quality and, you know, like they barely had a budget. It was almost, that was, we had more fun with those ones. But uh, yeah, it's funny how animation and, and horror both kind of are, are these gateways for, for young movie makers and movie watchers. And yeah. Yeah. well, it's that whole, I want to be part of that thing. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the sense of passion behind the films that yeah. I think pulls us in and inspires us. I just, yeah, it's, it was, it was also not so much animation, but with horror, it was sort of the forbidden thing, the thing you're not supposed to be right. doing when you're a kid. Right. You're watching Dawn of the Dead at 12 or 13, as soon as you can yeah. get your hands on the tape, it's like, this is a thing that I could do. I could actually experience these things. And then someone makes them, they're they're put into the world. Yeah. And like finding, Oh, well, some like, I remember watching, you know, evil dead, which then brings it evil dead Two, Right. And just being at all of like the, the tactile nature of those films and the blood and like the, the, you know, some of the, there's some animated moments and they like, there's, there's uh they're funny or at least the second one's funny. But, uh, as like someone who was just getting it into my head, like, Oh, I, I want to make movies. I couldn't believe that they put all these different elements together and made this really like joyous thing. Um, that felt very like handmade in a way, you know, I think very thankful. I grew up in the eighties when you've got like nightmare on Elm street with, you know, all the creative deaths and, and the way that Freddie would, would kill you were all like, each one was just so exciting, you know, like it was, yeah, it was scary and you're going to get scared, but then, you watch it once, you get the story, you know, okay, I'll, you watch it the second time to like figure out how they did it or like watch the, the craft that was, that was happening. Yeah. Um, well, it gave you a license, to, it gave the filmmaker a license to do anything. To, yeah. Especially a concept like that. And Friday the 13th is really just, someone described it once as a perfect, um, what was it? The perfect expression of the pornography aesthetic, but for horror, because there's yeah. a scene every seven minutes and whatever it is, it's right. the, the, the scene is over in 20 seconds. Right. But it's like, it's all release. It's no, there's no foreplay. The foreplay is walking into the dark and then yeah, it's probably Molly Askell, but, and, um, but it yeah. just takes the form of, of 
or takes the structure of pornography and applies it to horror in a way that no one else had done before. So it it's like a cycle of giving you what you want over and over mm-hmm. again. It's just that there's 10 of them and they're all terrible. I, I'll never forget the first time. I think I was, I was still living in Delaware and we moved out of Delaware when I was six. So I was probably four or five and it might even be one of my earliest memories. And it's so, it, it won't leave my brain because what I saw on the screen, I walked upstairs at my friend's house and, um, uh, his older sister was watching the first, uh, nightmare on Elm street. And I just stood in the doorway and I only saw about five minutes and it was the five minutes when Johnny Depp, Depp gets sucked into the bed and it spews the blood up. Yeah. And, you know, talk about like of all the five minutes to see in that movie, <laughs> that was like the perfect one. I was standing there and I was like, I was so aware that I shouldn't be watching this thing and I couldn't stop watching this thing. You know, it was like, and then, you know, a year or two later or not, maybe two or three years later, uh, we, I rented it for the first time. And I don't, it's so funny. Cause like, Freddy Krueger was like such a phenomenon. Like I knew about him as like a, you know, as a young kid, I dress as him in third grade at, uh, for Halloween. You know, there's a picture of me like with the mask and the gloves, which you could buy in any Halloween yeah. store for kids. Um, and I think because he, that he was, he had that humor to him, you know, he was like, he was scary, but he also, he, he was kind of silly at the same time. So as a, as a kid that really loved, you know, all of that, it was, it was like the perfect combination, but yeah, that first moment seeing it, that, that, you know, if they had been watching some other movie, like some rom-com or something, I might, I might not be here today, you know, like that might've set me on my path. Yeah, that is, and I've never understood it the way, I mean, I get it, I I guess it's a defense mechanism in horror, but I've never understood how a child murderer, someone who is established as the most villainous child murdering monster becomes a kid's hero but that's absolutely what happened like i was there i saw it happening right um and he wasn't even funny in the first one it didn't the jokes didn't start till the second one that's right the you know as they go on he gets kind of sillier and sillier but the first one is legitimately like i mean he he has like some one-liners here and there in the first one i think but um yeah like come to freddy is as close as it gets i think yeah, yeah to being playful but you know, like she's on the phone, and the tongue comes out of the phone. Like it's, it's, it's almost getting silly, or you know, it's just like it's just so surreal that I yeah. think it's like a it, prank in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's it's a fascinating thing. Do you just want to do Nightmare on Elm Street? Because we I certainly mean, I could. could talk about it all day. You know, I, yeah. Uh, it's it's might be the one of the movies I've seen the most, just because you know you revisit it every year every october it seems like it's like oh here i am again it's like the 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 leaves are falling off the trees and it's it's october it's a scary month i gotta i gotta watch that i gotta watch uh recently it's the thing it's uh john carpenter's the thing is is one that i think about a lot yeah i mean i'm not surprised that a film about an unstoppable contagion and a a paranoia that develops among ordinary professionals has caught additional relevance, but it's right. never gone out of style. I, I yeah. just, um, I, I've, I've done an episode on that with, uh, with a friend of mine with Cat Angus a few years ago. And we talked about the, the perfect timing. It's 40 years old now. And, uh, it doesn't feel like a combination of the practical effects yep. and the, psychological deconstruction of masculinity. It's like, it's come right back around. It's like it never went away. Right. It feels like it's still made in the future. You know, it's still yeah. like 
feels like it's coming out next year. Yeah. Whereas uh, Nightmare on Elm Street has this timeless quality because of the the dreaminess of it, right? Like the self-focused right. nature of the film makes it yeah. feel like totally like a period piece and totally contemporary as as well because the concerns aren't really going away. I mean, now, Jesus Christ, a film about parents trying to protect their children by murdering a murderer, I, yeah. again, I, way more timely than right. anyone ever expected. And but the, yeah. the purity of that message of the idea that you're not safe in your dreams and that, you know, everybody has to sleep. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, I think it, you're, you're like, oh, this could happen or I could, this, you know, especially when you're a child and you have really intense dreams, which I used to have night terrors, oh, yeah. they, they would feel as real as, you know, waking life. And the, the memory of those dreams is still so vivid, you know, like the feeling of them. And I think, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street really tapped into that. Also, one thing I, I appreciate more as I get older, maybe is like, um, the acting in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, the kind of like campiness or, or just like the line readings, like they're all, there's something about it that just feels, um, I don't want to say like amateurish, but it's just like it, I don't know if you, a movie, if they, if it came out today, if it would, if, and they were acting like that, if I would appreciate it the same way, but there's something about that time period with, um, yeah, like, like you said, like that kind of soft focus, like the, the haziness, the dreaminess of it, that all just works. The music, it, it just like one of those examples where it just, everything came together and, uh, you can just feel that like, you know, every, I, I recently watched the, um, you know, that Netflix show, what is it? Uh, the movies that made us. Oh yeah. And there was an episode on everyone on Elm street and it's just so fascinating to like, to, to hear about all the people that made it talk about how hard it was to get it, you know, get it going and get the funding and no one knew what it was. And it was a new company. Was it like new line cinema or something? And this was, yeah, like it was new lines first. Well, they distributed the first evil dead, if I remember correctly, but uh, nightmare on Elm street, I think was their first hit. It was, it was their, their first, first theatrical yeah. hit. Right. And like they, you know, they, only exists because I think that movie was such a success. Um, and you know, Wes Craven, like he, I think started out in porn, which is interesting to, uh, your whole thing about the movie keeps giving you these little, you know, scenes. Yeah. He was, he was sort of accused of that when last house on the left came out too. I remember Mm -hmm. people called it the pornography of violence and it was, it was, because it was so manipulative, not because it was so graphic, although that was right. part of it. It was more about, you know, parents and children and, and revenge and murder and, and what parents, again, what, what, what parents will do for their kids becomes a theme in all of his, not yeah. all of his cinema, but like you reverse it in the screen films and it's kids right. haunted by their parents sins again. Right. Um, Working he, through it. Yeah. He just had some kind of Craven as a filmmaker fascinates me because he was never any better than his script. Anyway, like you can always tell uh, which ones had time to gestate and bubble up and which ones were like deadly blessing or the Hills have eyes too, which was just, I don't know. I can do this for this year and here's a right. horror movie, but the ones that sat feel weirdly personal, like last house and, mm-hmm. and nightmare on Elm street and weirdly deadly friend, which not a good movie, uh-huh. but really sad. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the one, the one with, uh, Christy Swanson is the robot that, be, or the, the kid, the nerdy robot kid, genius who's 
best friend dies and he rebuilds her as a robot or puts a robot chip in her brain. I can't oh, wow, I remember how that. it works. I haven't seen it in something like 25 years. Yeah. And it's known now only for the meme of Anne Ramsey getting a basketball to the head, which, <laughs> I, which right. has survived it. I've seen that. I have yeah. seen that gif. That's an incredible. I think I, yeah. It's I a hell of a moment. Frame. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it is so weird and sad about losing it. It's not even about losing love. It's about sort of a platonic relationship with somebody who wow. who's gone and you can't survive without. And yeah. it's got this core of lonely sadness, but the movie around it is just ludicrous, mm-hmm. but you can feel like he was trying, like there's something That's in there cool. that he's working on. Well, you touch on something there about just like time. I think that's the, the great secret for all films, at least the ones as I've gotten older, I've realized like Strawberry Mansion was, we had, a, it was a 14 year gestation period oh, from, wow. from like the moment of um, the first initial thought. And then year, a couple years later, the script was written and then a couple of, you know, it was like, but, but all through that time it was still growing and changing. And um, uh, I don't know. I th- and then, you know, the, we, we made it and then the pandemic happened and that really like slowed it down some more so we could like take our time with the edit and the special effects. And mm-hmm. I'm just so thankful. Like people talk about, like they ask me questions about like, you know, they want to make this movie and they're trying to do it like this fast way. Or I'm just like, you want to take your time with it both like before you film it. And if you can film it, like we filmed in two or three different sections, which was so helpful. Like we filmed, for a week and a half and then took like a month and a half off to, to make more props and costumes. Oh, yeah. But in that period we started editing the first round and then that informed the second round of filming so much, you know, like it's just like a superpower when you can take your time with something and let it like develop its natural kind of like rhythm, uh, which, you know, I think when you talk about like the movie industry, they don't, they don't, allow that time because it's all these, you know, the movie's got to be out this date and here's the release. And, you know, I, I, I'm really, as I get older, I'm just like, well, I just want to slow down. I want to take years to, to do it. It's the idea too, that yeah. Creativity and time are two separate animals that mm-hmm. sometimes, yes. You know, if all you have is a week to make your movie, you right. make, you can make the ideal version of that. Cause there's no alternative. Right. But if you have months or even years, yeah, you don't even know what the ideal version is from, from one year to the next because you're changing. Yeah, I, uh, I think there's probably a good middle ground or balance between them because you can wait along forever and never start something because you're like, oh, I'm just you know thinking about it. I'm going to get the script just right. But at some point, you got to like, you know, go outside and, and stand in the rain and get wet and just start filming. Um, I... Recently, I actually had COVID, and for about a week, I was just in bed. I, I'm, I'm all good now, but I watched so many kind of movies, like my comfort movies, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and one of those is Paris, Texas, the Ben uh, Benders. But uh, I watched it, and then I started from the beginning and watched it with the commentary for the first time, which was really great. I didn't realize that he and Sam Shepard had only uh, figured out like the first half of that story that script up until um travis and his brother get back to la and then there was just nothing and they they filmed it all and the plan was sam was going to come on set and they were going to 
be watching and they were going to figure it out as they went and kind of like, we'll know who the characters are and know where it needs to go by the time we get to LA. But Sam was on some other film. And so they took like a week off and, and then Wenders, uh, just like kind of figured it out, told Sam an idea. And then he wrote the rest of it where they go back to the, you know, Houston and there's just this amazing ending of the movie. But I love that, that they just kind of jumped right into it and, you know, I think to do that, you've got like amazing actors. Okay. Yeah. You got Harry Dean Stanton. You've got like a cinematographer that you've worked with on multiple features, Robbie Mueller, who's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just like, uh, I don't know, uh, ability to work on your feet and, and kind of find it and, and dream it and work your way through it, which, so in that case, you know, they could have waited around and not, and waited till the rest of the script was done. But at some point it's like, well, you got to just start, start filming. shooting. Yeah. Yeah. And figure yeah. it out. So I think that the, yeah, there's some kind of sweet spot where you can, you know, maybe it's like every script should just be written the half of it first half. And then you should take a couple of weeks off when you finish filming that and figure out the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, you can see it working on a film like that because it is so intimate and small. Like it's not like you're going to introduce five new characters or some new plot complication. Yeah. It has to be where it has to get where it's going. And if you look at the material you've shot, eventually, yeah, the the, the path becomes clear. Right. I, I love the idea that Strawberry Mansions took shape because you had to think about it because you were building it, literally yeah. constructing it. And that Definitely. changed the way you approached it. Yeah. It, um, I think, you know, we filmed all of the scenes with Preble and Bella, so with Kentucker and Penny Fuller in in her house. We we did all that first. Like we had a we only had Penny for like a week. So we knew, okay, we've gotta we've gotta film all of these scenes. And then the second half when we got back together was all kind of like the dreamscape stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just great knowing kind of everything that had happened in the house and and this relationship between Preble and Bella, it it helped us so much kind of like jump off into this dreamscape where anything can happen. And um, yeah, I mean, if we had like had to film the dream stuff first, it would have, I don't know, it wouldn't have, it would have been really difficult. I think like we needed to, it's like you can't dream until you know who's dreaming or something, you know? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. The, the sense of, you were talking about the stilted performances or the, the, the effect yeah. in, um, in Nightmare. But this, I've seen people make dream sequences. Even Lynch does it here and there where the actors don't know what they're doing rather than the characters. Mm-hmm. And it's not always something that works. It's great. It's disorienting. It's like, if it works, it's terrific. But if it doesn't, for me anyway, I can read it instantly as mm-hmm. hesitation and confusion mm-hmm. uh, and almost self-parody of what we think a dream sequence is supposed to right. be like. Strawberry right. Mansion doesn't do that because the dreams all have meaning and purpose like, to the filmmaker. They're not, the yeah. audience, we get to figure them out in real right. time, more or less. But it, I never doubted that they were created with intent within the film itself, that I, I, knew what I, I knew I was supposed to be seeing what I was seeing and experiencing what I was experiencing. I mean, in much the same way that Nightmare on Elm Street does it because yeah. you have... Um, these sequences are designed to terrify us, but also confuse, disorient. There are there are secondary goals going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I would even argue that mostly the terror is the secondary goal in the first half of the film because 
the movie has to teach the audience how to read it or right. something like that. And Strawberry right. Mansion has the same challenge. Yeah. And you know, it, it's funny because when we did our first like kind of round of interviews for this movie, I didn't, I didn't talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. I wasn't, I think because it had been there since I was, you know, four or five years old, I just, it was easy to forget about it in a way, or like it was easier to bring up, you know, movies I had seen more recently that were inspirational to me, uh, or that Ken Tucker and I were talking about, but it was one of those ones that was just like, almost like the Bible for me, you know, it was like nightmare was so deep in there. Um, it's the ur text. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one that I, I would talk about, Kentucky and I both, I think, would talk about a lot was uh, Never Ending Story as a, as a children's movie that we watched a lot. But in a similar way to Nightmare, it, um, you know, it creates this fantasy, this, this other world that, that ends up being as real as, as the real world for the, the main characters, for, uh, for Bastion. And I think just that idea, like, to me, that from a very young age, when I watch a movie, I think I want to be transported someplace like I want to and I, I mean I guess to an extent we all do we want to like there's something better than the kind of like going to a dark movie theater or put, popping on a VHS tape when you're a kid and just kind of forgetting who you are or your life or any problems that you might have at school or bills you have to pay or any of that just like especially I know in 2020 uh, the m movies we were picking were like ones that were tran would transform us and, and, and transport us to places like a lot of, I was watching a lot of Miyazaki films, you know, like Spirited oh, yeah. Away. And um, they're like, you know, you just create other worlds that, that you can get lost in. I mean, some people maybe they love watching a, a movie that is, like, is exactly like their life or is about like a relationship or, or people fighting or just like a drama that is very heavy. And sure, I've enjoyed those from time to time, but I think more and more I'm just, I, I want to to be, be in the arms of someone that takes me, you know, takes me someplace new. Uh, yeah. I mean, certainly escapism, it's what movies are for. Right. right? Like That's the you word. Can, you can, you can have your Cassavetes, but right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I love, I, I love John Cassavetes. He's a yeah. formative filmmaker for me, but I, I can't, like, yeah, I can't eat that every day. No, just, you know, that's, that's like, we watched Minnie Mouskowitz a couple months ago and that was, that was nice to, to watch that again. But yeah, I'm not popping that on every day. Whereas like Beetlejuice might be, I could watch that once a week and have a good time, <laughs> you know? Um, and the, but yeah, yeah. The Miyazaki thing makes sense to Strawberry Mansion as well. Cause it is, his films are so, um, so rooted in worlds that don't have to make sense. Yeah, uh, like the, there's an emotional logic that makes sense uh, yeah. in his movies, but you know, I'm thinking of something like Totoro, where you're watching a child process the potential death of her mother from something that the child yeah. can't understand, so the movie can't understand it. Yes, we're so rooted in that escape for her, right? And everything else that follows. There's a bus that's a cat. There's a right. you know, like there's a giant. I don't know, super mouse with an umbrella that's right. just there all the time for her. And you come out of it with this warm feeling of being cared for and listened to and loved mm -hmm. that like, it's not articulated in the movie ever. Right. But that's so clearly what it's about. And what you take away from, from Miyazaki is that he, he may not understand it all himself. Um, mm -hmm. He is, he is 
I, I got to interview him once and he was actually hostile to the idea of interpreting uh, wow. Princess Mononoke. It's like, no, it is what it is. I, I yeah. wrote the story and this is the story. It's like, but it's crazy. It's, isn't yeah. it about environmentalism and how we have to protect? No, it's about a girl right. who's a warrior and a fox friend and a guy with a curse. And he just refused to, and I yeah. think he was also fucking with me. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like the was, interview he did right before, he probably said, yes, you can interpret it all you want. You know, it's just like <laughs> what kind of mood he's in or... it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the new Shiny Things newsletter, a weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming show. This week, I write about Music Box Films' Blu-ray release of Strawberry Mansion. Seriously, you should watch that movie. And considered some reasons why Star Trek Strange New Worlds works so well and why Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. It's me. I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. I think that's that's what's so great about them is because they're they exist on multiple levels. You know, you can watch it. You can watch Spirited Away as like, you know, a cautionary tale about pollution. You know, polluting this river, and you know, like that's such an amazing moment when when the dragon when when he remembers his name and he was the river, and you know, it's all about like, you're like oh my god, like the spirit the spirits of this world are like dirty and they're they're polluted, and we have to you know, or it's just about a young girl who's like you know gets lost in a bathhouse and has to, you know, be, become brave and find her way back to her parents. Yeah. And both of those interpretations are just yeah. valid. Right? And, and I think, I mean, to, to make like a live action Miyazaki film is like kind of the, the dream or like what I, I think Tucker and I would aspire to. Like if you can make a movie that feels like those movies feel, but just make it live action. Um, I would make an animated one if I could animate. I mean, he's, he's just the best is, you know, he and his studio Ghibli, but uh, yeah, there's something just like that. So freeing about those movies that anything can happen at any moment and, and things aren't questioned, you know, it's like when, you know, when she's in the, once she gets to the spirit world, once she gets to the bathhouse, it's just all bets are off. Anything could happen. You know, the person scooping coal into the furnace has, you know, eight arms or, you know, there's a giant, there's three giant heads bouncing around. It's just like, yeah, okay, here we are. <laughs> exactly. These things happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's dream logic, but it's also concrete logic for the film. And Strawberry Mansion does the same thing where the world we're seeing, it's a representation, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's not a metaphor exactly because it's built in and happening right in front of us, but yeah. we're seeing, you know, the, the, um, someone's emotional history play out in in front of us in sort of a, I don't know, I want to say superluminal, but I think that's a made up word. It's just a sort of invention yeah. of light. We're, we're seeing a creation and yeah. that comes to, in a weird way, back to, to Nightmare, but also to Miyazaki. But you're, you're, you are counting on our commitment, the audience's commitment to watch the film, to understand. And, and that's the thing that I, I love about movies is if you do it right you are being hypnotized by the film. You're totally. seeing someone else's dream, right? Like that's the whole point. We go into this alpha yeah. state of passive reception and yes. And, and you're, and that's, you know, nothing else gets quite at that dream feeling that dream state than movies. And for the longest time, I know I, 
when I was in school and then I used to work at a movie theater, I would often fall asleep during, during movies. And they would be like, you know, watching these amazing, like a Tarkovsky film, you know, I was like, I love this film. And then I wake myself up or like at Princess Mononoke, I might've watched that five or six times before I could make it through it. Cause I'd always fall asleep in like the same spot. Oh, yeah. And I, I, as I got older, I was like, I, I might've even seen an article about this, but it was, it was basically saying like, a, that's okay to fall asleep. And B, it's because the filmmakers are, these ones especially are like so good at, at producing that dream feeling, that dream state that you're, yeah, being hypnotized and being lulled into this very, you know, safe, like for me, it's like a safe place where I can like let myself go to sleep and, and wander off into the dream, you know, but, um, you know, it's like a, a bad, maybe a, a bad film. It's like, I'll stay awake the whole time. And then it's like the really good ones that are just like, they're like daring me to, you know, it happens all the time with Bergman too, which I, who I love, love his films, but I just get so sleepy. <laughs> yeah. I always wonder if it's not something to do with deliberate pacing and something else. Like, I don't mm -hmm. know what the X factor is. Right. Um, I just saw Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future. Oh, wow. Which is downright stately in its yeah. pacing. I mean, you, re you remember he used to do that a lot that right. sort of slow glide into yes. um, perversion. <laughs> this is yeah. the only way I can describe it for things like Crash and Existence, or he's got this, it's yeah. not mannered. It's it's just very serene. His pacing mm -hmm. is very smooth. It started with Dead Ringers, I think. Yeah, just, yeah. I, I can see the camera like moving really like slowly across the room in that one. Yeah, and deliberate um, emotional pacing as well. Mm -hmm. And Crimes is a film about people, you know, performing, literally performing the act of surgery on themselves and having, mm -hmm. uh, it's Viggo Mortensen's character is growing new organs in this weird dystopian yeah. whatever. And he has them removed. He has them extracted for an audience and it's his yeah. performance. And Leia Sadu is his, is his assistant and his collaborator, his artistic collaborator. And she's the one running yeah. the machinery. And it's, when it happens, it's almost calm. Uh -huh. Like there's no, there's, there's, graphic imagery of organs being sliced and, and yeah. chest cavities being exposed, but it's not violent. And it's fascinating in that he's just sort of turning it into an almost like a, like an opera in a minor key, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I wasn't fighting sleep or anything, but I've seen a couple of reviews that have can that have said, you know, it, it risks being so horrific. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. But not in a bad way. Right. It's just, that's not it, a, to me, that's not a, yeah, that's a, that's a, what you want. <laughs> yeah. He's just sort of inviting you to match his pace and, and think about what's going on. Yeah. I, um, I love Cronenberg and I'm really excited to see it. I'm also very scared because oftentimes, you know, there's that one scene in a movie where you get a graphic, you know, like a scalpel slicing skin or an eyeball being whatever. Yeah. Those are usually the scenes I have to look away in a movie. So it's like, this feels like it's going to be a whole movie of that. And maybe I'm going to like, I don't know, drink a beer or drink a coffee or something before. And it's going to help me like really get lost in it. Uh, Just, yeah, yeah that there, that's going to happen a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> so did you like it? I did. I, I also think it's his funniest film in a long time. Oh, uh, cool. Uh, which no one gives it is clearly no one is giving him credit for right now. Yeah. Um, but Mortensen is like sort of uniquely positioned to make fun of the concept as he's 
harvesting himself to just mm-hmm. sort of just joke about the way he's feeling and, and what he's doing. It would take way too long to explain everything. And I don't want to ruin it for you, but he just has little throwaway moments where he acknowledges the absurdity of all of this while still committed to it. <laughs> and I can't think of another actor who's worked with maybe Goldblum in The Fly uh-huh. sort of played with that a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very cool. I Videodrome was a very important film when I was like 18, 19. I watched that. So, you know, back in the early days when you didn't have many DVDs, I had like seven DVDs or something, and that was one right. of them. So it was like in rotation. But, um, you know, just like the last 30 minutes, just like seeing that you can kind of just go down this rabbit hole and everything doesn't need to make sense and can be, you know, strange and mysterious where you didn't think it was going to go. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So this is another example too of hallucinatory dream cinema. We keep coming back to this idea that, that you're seeing a movie dream at you, showing you things that aren't possible. Yeah. And I remember I had a a professor in school who would say, I think about it all the time. He'd say, um, you know, why does everything have to be a dream? Like just, you know, as, as student filmmakers, it's like, and then I woke up and it was, you know, it was all a dream or, He's like, no, the film is the dream. You know, it's like that doesn't need to be, you don't need to dream that. I guess I filled him with Shara Mansion because it's, uh, it, it is about dreams. But uh, I think about that a lot. And like, you know, a movie like Videodrome, I think does that so well where it, you know, it feels like a dream. You know, like in movies when like something scary happens, is happening and then the person like wakes up mm-hmm. and then that happens like five times throughout the movie and you're just like, Okay. Anytime someone's curious, it's going to like wake up, you know, and it like, you just start, I don't know when I watched those movies recently, I'm kind of just like, I wish it just had gone for it. You know, like a movie like evil dead, there's no dream. It's just like you enter into the dream. The moment the movie starts and you're in a cabin in the woods and there's zombies coming through the windows in the basement. And you know, maybe you do a fake out once or twice here and there, but like you're in it, you're, there's no escape. Yeah. It's the, the embrace of jump scares in, in the last 20 years as the only reason to make the movie mm-hmm. has just made me very, very sad. Yeah. Things like I, I've described it as um, movies where people walk into a room and wait to be scared because now we've learned that drawing out the tension is the thing that people respond to the most. And mm-hmm. James Wan, you know, God love him. It's his thing and he's perfected it, but I'm done with it. I, I The Conjuring movies and they do nothing for me and the Insidious yeah. films are just... I get it. This is what, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait for something to happen. And then sometimes it's real. And sometimes it's a fake out before the real scare. But even then, like the nature of these movies means nothing can possibly happen until the last five minutes. It's like found footage, right? Like you're trapped in here with, with the concept. Yeah. But, But strawberry mansion is about possessing dreams, right? Like it's about preserving and recording them. Yeah. In such a way that, you can still go into them, but you can go into them on your own terms. Yeah. And, you know, so inspired by what's behind you there, that shelf of, of movies, you know, being, being a kid and going into a a video store and any of like, there's other people's dreams that I can hold in my hand and look at the cover and flip it over. And there's more pictures and any one of these I'll bring home and we'll totally, transport me you know that that which I, I i brought my niece into a video store a couple years ago and it was her first time ever going in one you know because she just 
And just to watch her like walk around and pick up stuff. And she ended up renting the Disney uh, Little Mermaid, you know? Okay. But it was, it was so cool to see that happening. And I, I worry now because it's like, oh, you know, I'm not sound like an old person. Like, well, kids these days with their streaming and everything. But um, it's, it's just something that is lost when you're, you know, the, the algorithm just tells you here's like the six movies you can watch tonight or what you're, you know. There's just something lost about when you're walk, wandering and you you see something out of the corner of your eye and you go over to it. And it's a little bit dangerous. or Or you talk to the person behind the counter and they tell you, you know. What what as a, what they've rented or watched recently? Yeah, the human wow. algorithm is so much more satisfying than the digital one, yeah. where you can just get to know someone who gets to know what you've rented. But it's also open to the like the corruption of somebody else saying, "No, no, this is good. You should see this. This has yeah. nothing to do with the ten movies you've just watched." But I love it. I mean, obviously, I'm a former film critic. I still am a film critic. I'm never going to yeah. stop doing that. But I'm, I'm biased towards the idea of the informed recommendation, but yeah, um, you never went into a video store and didn't come out with something, right? right? Like if what you wanted to see wasn't available, you picked something else because that was okay. Now I, I, I don't know one person who hasn't spent an hour at some point looking at tiles and then not watching something. Uh, yeah. You, you kind of like at the end of the hour, you're like, I, I, that's, that was what I watched tonight was these tiles go by. Yeah. And I read a couple of descriptions. Maybe I watched a trailer or two, but you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm uh, getting kind of tired or go you just make don't a have any time left. Yeah, for whatever yeah. you're going to do. No, it's it's crushing. I, the, the state of things. I, I will never get rid of the physical media stuff because I just yeah. I need to know that I've got it. I, I need to know yeah. it's there for me if the internet goes away. Right. I, you know, I just bought um, this is a, a friend of mine. I don't know if you've seen it, Inspector Ike. No, no, I don't know it. it it's uh, Factory 25 put this out, but this is uh, Graham Mason. This is his uh, first feature, but it was so satisfying to buy the Blu-ray, and he's got a commentary track on here, and uh, I just can't wait to, to pop this in. Um, and, you know, it, I feel a little like it's a Friends movie. I, I don't know if I buy... I, I Actually, today I did buy a couple of VHS. Um, a friend was having a sale, a moving sale, mm-hmm. and... It was exciting. They had a whole wall of VHS, and it was exciting to to go through and pick a couple out. Um, but yeah, I don't buy it as not, uh, as much as I should physical stuff. There is a great video store here, Beyond Video in Baltimore, that opened oh, up a couple years ago. That uh, it still feels, you know, like that that holy space of our youth. It's I think they have twenty five thousand titles now, which is wow. You know, it's pretty good. I yeah. Mean, just the idea that there's a generation of filmmakers growing up without that access. Yeah. I mean, it was my film school. I went to film school and it was still my film school. Right. Working in a video store in the late 80s and early 90s. My family is a movie family and my grandfather owned a movie theater. So mm-hmm. we, I grew up in the projection, like visiting the projection booth. And so it's all been demystified for me. So growing up in like the projection booth, are you a fan of like Cinema Paradiso? Um. <laughs> not the sentimentality weirdly yeah. enough yeah. I, I like the story and it's I get why it connects and resonates with people but right. the idea that first of all on some level the idea of censoring films and keeping all the kisses bothers me um, <laughs> just because of the like the mutilation of the movie being so right. key to it but it was not like the other thing that that Tornatore just conveniently leaves out is how loud the projection booth is you can't uh-huh. have conversations in there right um, 
It's so just then, not possible. So then the movie I was going to talk about today, Kings of the Road, I don't know if you've seen that one, but... Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, that. so that, you know, the, the main character in all those booths just servicing these old machines, which I, I love that, uh, you know, I think he just wanted to make him a, a, a repairman because he loved these old theaters and loved visiting them and getting to know the people. And all those booths were just like already perfectly dressed with posters and, you know, women in bikinis. And yeah. Isn't there a frame picture of John Ford in the back of one of them? Yeah. Yeah. And he said, I, I watched the commentary recently for that and he, um, he didn't do anything. That was all, all hanging in all those places. Just beautiful. Which I'm sure now, you know, that was 76, so they're all, I'm sure they're all gone by now. They're probably, I mean, in, yeah. in North America, they'd be condos. I don't know what they'd be in Germany. Yeah. Probably Especially in the countryside, centers. those were like small towns, like sprinkled along the east-west German border. Yeah. I do find it fascinating how, I have no idea how I'm going to fit all this into one episode, but it works. <laughs> um, that it opens with a scene where he's talking to, to a cinema owner and asking him like, can you keep this place going with just one screen? Yeah. And now it seems more relevant than ever. Yeah. And like it's the, the movie starts there and it ends with another uh, owner saying she doesn't want to show the movies nowadays. Cause they're just like, not as good as the old ones. And I was thinking, Oh my God, like 76, like what would the same person be saying, you know, in 2022 about the state of movies? And, um, I, I don't know if you saw that, uh, tweet going around or I don't know where it was, but it was like, I, I think, um, Times Square cinemas or, or the movies that were coming out on one weekend in like 1977 oh, yeah, yeah. And it was versus like Dr. Strange opening, like at the Times Square cinema or whatever. And it was like, like on every screen, yeah, every screen, just one movie, you know? And it's like, to me, that's just, that just sums it up. It's like, we're like, I, I don't think I have a problem with the, the Marvel movies, but I wish that they just gave a little bit more space for some of, for other types of movies. So that, you know, like I, I love small films. I, I want to make small films for the rest of my life. You know, I think to me, small is just personal and there's no one telling me what to do. I can just do whatever I want. And I think that's exciting. Like a movie like Tito, you know, Grace's film. It's like, mm -hmm. that's a, that's her singular vision. And yeah, she has great collaborators with like Ben and, and her cinematographer and the music, the, the score, but it's really, you can feel the, the artist in there, you know? And, you know, I love Sam Raimi, but I'm afraid if I see the new Doctor Strange, I'm going to feel him in a, a couple moments here and there, but there's going to be a lot of moments where I don't feel him. Whereas Evil Dead 2, he, I feel him, you know, and Bruce Campbell in every inch of that movie. So I think, you know, and, and with like a King Kings of the road that, you know, is just a, a small personal film. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. I just saw it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. So it's still very fresh, but. Oh, wow. Really? Under, you know, just stumbled upon, like, how I, did that happen? Yeah. Well, I had seen, you know, I had seen Paris, Texas, loved it. Wings of Desire. Amazing. One of my favorites, Alice in the Cities. Mm -hmm. uh, I had seen what the one in 91 is like kind of last big epic road movie. That's like six hours long at the oh, until end. the end of the world, until the end of the world, which is, which is when you pick Kings of the road, I couldn't connect it at all to strawberry mansion, but I could connect right till the end of the world. And until the end of the world, I saw in 2020 after having made strawberry mansion, we were editing it and I was like, wow, there's <laughs> some cool overlap here. Um, but I don't know why I, you know, I had 
never seen Kings of the Road. It was just one of those ones that, that I had heard about and heard it was part of this road trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason it was just, that was the movie to put on one night. And it took us a couple nights, you know, it's long, it's like three hours and we'd watch 45 minutes or an hour. And it was almost like with a movie like that, it, I want to go through it slowly. Like I don't want to watch it all at once. I want to like live with the, the bit I, we saw. Um, and then I told Kentucker about it and you know, it's always risky when you tell your, your, you know, closest friend and collaborator, you got to check this movie that I really love. Cause sometimes he comes back and he's kind of like, Oh, you know, <laughs> uh, but with that one, he, he took the recommendation and he's like, that's, that's the best movie I've ever seen. You know, and I think we're both now like we're writing a new film, but we're both, I think already dreaming one movie beyond that where we can do a road movie, you know, <laughs> uh, I'd love to see it. It's anything influenced by that film is going to be distinctive, if nothing else, just because yeah. it's like I, I saw I saw it in my tw- my late twenties, I guess it was the last. It was maybe the last theater. No, that can't be right. Well, no, I mean, it was definitely it was a theatrical retrospective. I saw it in a theater with about seventy people. Cool. At, Jackman, I want to say Jackman Hall, which is where the Cinematech screenings used to be before the Lightbox opened up, mm-hmm. um, and it was a, it was not restored. It was before the restoration, so the black yeah. and white was almost pearlescent in some. Uh-huh. Like it, it was the the state of the print kept. It was real to real. It kept changing. Yeah. Um, and I knew it was three hours long, and I'm not sure everybody did because there was there were some people grumbling when it as the audience filed in, I don't think they knew how long it was. Right. So it's like someone had just told them there was no intermission. And so it's, like, <laughs> but it was great. It's, it's, you don't feel the passage of time or you do, but it, it, it works yeah. for the story. Totally. And the, the slow, it's the slow lack of exposition. Like the fact mm-hmm. that you're not going to know everything about these characters and yeah. it doesn't become frustrating. It just sort of becomes relief. Yeah. That early, it's almost an hour into the film. I was going to say that early moment where one says, "Oh, I, I was married," and the other says, "I don't care." Yeah, I didn't yeah. ask you about that. Just immediately right. shuts down that conversation, and then it's all about the denial of how lonely they both are. Right. But it floats like like cream that you have to skim off in a yeah. way on this this incredible construction. And this like kind of friendship that right off the very beginning when the one when kamikaze drives his you know car into the water he comes out and they just laugh they just start laughing like the very first moment they're face to face they just both laugh and it's like what a what an amazing start to this kind of unlikely friendship and you can see that both of them over the course of the rest of the movie likes having the other's company or is kind of it's like this this little budding bromance that is so sweet and uh you know, even by the end when they kind of separate and, and it's an amazing moment where one's on the train and they, they're crossing and they, they're still talking to each other, you know, yeah. like, don't think I didn't see you there, you know? Um, yeah, just, uh, just, I mean, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. I guess that's, that's what I was thinking when I was watching. I was like, D- you know, this is, this is like cinema as like poetry and as medicine and as, you know, just daydreaming through, reality like just capturing these little moments that are so easy to miss in our lives because we're all caught up in you know pumping gas or paying bills or whatever we have to do go to work and 
it's like we're we're not we're all, all these beautiful moments are just passing us by, and this movie just captures them and finds these little details and uh, to hear how they made it, where it was just basically he said I didn't have a script, I had an itinerary, so he had he had himself driven the route once before kind of taken note of all the places he wanted to film at and then goes back with this, his trusted actors and crew. Again, it's like, you can't do that movie if you, if you haven't built up this, this, these relationships with your, your close crew members, but you know, just, just to be allowed to do that and to, to kind of figure it out and dream in the wide open spaces. I, I just, I, I really, you know, I, I love making movies. I love making movies in different ways. Strawberry Mansion was, a, you know, many year long dream, but I'd love to try to become a little bit more um, loose or spontaneous. And uh, it's nice to know that Kentucky also would like to. So I, again, the movie we're writing now is kind of like, I think it's taking, it's like the idea of Strawberry Mansion and going even bigger. And we're call it, we're kind of calling it like the end of this unofficial trilogy that we started with Silvio and then Strawberry Mansion in the middle just in terms of like fantasy and, and, and dreamscapes and kind of, uh, getting lost in, in other realms. But then I think both of us after that, we want to like, just, you know, get a van and drive and see what we can find out there. Make our Kings of the road. My thanks to Albert Burney, whose new film strawberry mansion is available on digital and disc right now from music box films. Thanks also to Lisa Trafone. She knows what she did. You can find Albert on Twitter at SimplySilvio, S-I-M-P-L-Y-S-Y-L-V-I-O, and you can find A Nightmare on Elm Street on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Crave and Stars in Canada, on Netflix and HBO Max in the U.S., and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like that or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.